Today, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about radical generosity. If you have your Bible, I want you to start by opening with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Now, let me just say something before we read the text here that we're going to start with. And I do have a lot of verses. I'm going to put a bunch of them on the screen today. Uh, If you're a note taker, you might want to just jot some of the references down. If you don't have time to turn there, you can go there later. But let me just say that this description of radical generosity is, uh, is accurate in a worldly sense. I mean, from our consumeristic American culture, the vantage point of what I'm going to say today is radical. Uh, It's foreign. Uh, If you're a person that maybe you don't really uh, know the Bible very well, maybe you haven't studied the teachings of Jesus very much, let me just say here at the onset that some of the things I'm going to say are going to sound radical. They're going to sound different to you. But I I want to give you some synonyms for that word radical. Uh, Because I grew up in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle era. And so let me just say radical, you know, means more than just cool or awesome or amazing. Let me give you a couple synonyms. It means thorough, complete, total, comprehensive, exhaustive, sweeping, far-reaching, wide-ranging, extensive, across-the-board, profound, major, rigorous generosity. That's what I'm talking about today. Radical generosity. And I also want you to understand this about it. Those from a cultural standpoint, radical is the right word. When you look at the New Testament church in the book of Acts and in the Gospels and And in the epistles, when you look at the way that the church that Jesus started lived, I want you to know that what we're calling radical generosity, they would have called normal Christianity. I want you to understand that, that in fact, all of these core values that we're preaching on in this six week series and and we're aiming to live out as a local church, these core values could all fall under the category of normal Christianity. I want you to know that we haven't come up with anything new. Maybe the phrasing's a little different. Maybe the way we talk about it or describe it is a little different, but it's normal Christianity. Acts chapter two, I want to look at verse 44 and 45. Here's what it says. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, some people might look at that scripture and right away want to explain it away through context. And the context explanation would be this. Well, this was a unique thing that God did because these people came on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then the day of Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit descended and revival broke out. The church was started and they didn't go home. And so people didn't really have everything they needed. They were living now in a place they weren't from. And that's why everybody shared everything. And that's why they had things in common. And that's why people sold their possessions to give to those who had need. Good story. But let me tell you what's amazing about the church. What's amazing to me is that this church, after it it, it expands From 120 people that started out meeting together in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, and it grows to over 10,000 believers. Flip over to Acts chapter 4. At the end of Acts chapter 4, 
we get essentially the same exact description of now that this, this mega church group of people, it says this in verse 32 of Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. I just want to read that statement again. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, and they brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. What I want you to get here at the beginning of this message is this understanding that generosity is a work of grace. It said that the grace of God was at work in their life so that, and then what we see as the result of that grace is generosity. We see kindness. We see sharing. We see people caring for one another's needs. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, Paul lists some of the gifts of the Spirit, and one of the gifts of the Spirit is the gift of giving. He said, if you have the gift of giving, then give generously. So generosity is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, uh, a challenge or a command, really, that God gave to the nation of Israel. As they were being established, God's already told them, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you into a prosperous place as a nation. And, and when I bless you, you need to not forget some things about my goodness. In other words, you need to extend what I've done for you into the lives of other people. And I want you to hear these words out of Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 and 8. He says this, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, he says, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. He said, don't be tight-fisted. Be open-handed. As God blesses your life, don't, don't hoard that blessing. Look for opportunities to, to not be tight-fisted, but to be open-handed. And so we have a definition that works well with that verse of what radical generosity looks like in, in our church. And, and I want to give you that definition. We've given you a, a definition for each of these core values and Radical generosity is like this. We embrace life with an open hand and not a clenched fist, knowing that God will provide what we need to fulfill his will. Just so that I know you're with me today, can we just say that out loud together? Let's just read that out loud. Here we go. We embrace life with an open hand and not a clenched fist knowing that God will provide what we need to fulfill his will. Here's what you have to understand today. Every behavior, and that's what these core values are, the Christian behaviors, every behavior is born out of a belief. Radical generosity flows out of a revelation of the goodness of your heavenly father. 
We live life with an open hand and not a clenched fist, knowing there's something we know. We are knowing that God will provide what we need to fulfill his will. See, when you live your life believing that you alone are your source, when you live your life believing that you're going to have to, you're going to have to just you know, depend on yourself and you're going to have to just be a self-made man or a self-made woman. When you live your life that way, what ends up happening is you get caught in the monkey trap. How many of you have heard of the monkey trap before? There's, this is a real thing. There's a, a monkey trap that is really simplistic in its design, but it's highly effective. And, and the simplicity of it is this, that that people will trap a monkey by taking a gourd or even a coconut, and, and they'll just cut a small circle in one end of it, just big enough for a monkey to put their hand in. And then they'll put an eye bolt through the back of it, or if it's really primitive, maybe they'll just tie it to a vine. But they'll attach that to, to a chain or to a tree so that it can't go anywhere. And then they take some of those green bananas that the monkeys love, and they put it inside the gourd. So sure enough, after a while, a monkey comes along, and, and they reach inside that little hole to grab the fruit. And when they grab it, they discover that with their fist closed, their hand can't come out. And so what will happen, especially like in, in Borneo, where a lot of the monkeys are given over to zoos, they don't want to trap them in a way that would harm them. So they use this method. And rather than just letting go of the fruit and slipping their hand back out, the monkey will stay there tirelessly all night, refusing to let go of what they think they can't afford to lose. And they'll end up losing the one thing that they wanted the most, their freedom. The monkey trap sounds simple and sounds like, boy, aren't, aren't you glad that, that we're not as much like monkeys as some would like us to believe? But the truth is, we're more like them than we'd like to admit. Because every one of us have, have, have bought into a monkey trap. Somewhere along the lines. Can I tell you pride is a monkey trap? It is. You know, what happens when we're prideful is we don't, we want to appear better than we are. We, we don't want to lose face. We want to save face. We, we don't want to admit our faults and our failures. We don't want to show our weaknesses. Why? Because we're prideful. And so we hold on. What are we holding on to? Holding on to our, our reputation, to people's perception of us to being right at all costs, and we hold on to it. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that pride comes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. The Bible says that God resists the proud. And so we're fighting to have everybody else think more of us, and God himself is resisting us. The Bible says if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. So the irony of the monkey trap of pride is that I want to be higher, and so I'm not going to let go of pride. But if I would let go and humble myself, God would exalt me. So it's a monkey trap that too many of us have gotten ourselves into. Can I tell you, unforgiveness is a monkey trap that far too many people, too many godly Christian people 
that believe they're going to heaven because Jesus forgave them. And yet, they've been trapped by unforgiveness. They've been trapped by bitterness, by resentment. And it is, it is a monkey trap because we think we're holding something over somebody when we won't forgive them. We think we're holding something over someone when we won't let the issue go. The reality is they're not losing any sleep over your unforgiveness. You're the one whose stomach is tied in knots. You're the one who's anxious. You're the one who's still arguing with them in your head 10 days later. You're the one that's thinking about them right now. Well, they're, they're probably out golfing or enjoying worship somewhere else. Unforgiveness is a monkey trap, and, and, and we keep ourselves bound because we refuse to let go of the thing that we think we, we have over somebody when, in fact, we're holding ourselves hostage. The Bible says give in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, and it'll be given unto you. You know, we use this verse to talk about money, but Jesus was talking about judgment. He was talking about the way you treat other people. Give, and I could insert the word forgiveness, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. Unforgiveness and resentment. Can I tell you, greed is a monkey trap. Self-centeredness, greed. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. It says, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. He's saying, here's the trap of money. He's saying, the more you try to hold on to, the more you refuse to, to let go of, you come to poverty that way. But the person that's a liberal giver, the person who's generous, that person, their world just keeps expanding. Their world just keeps enlarging. Their friendships keep enlarging. People that want to do favors for them keeps enlarging. Goodness finds those people. Why? Because they're not stuck over here holding on to what they think is their last meal. They've been released from that poverty mentality, and they've learned to trust in the goodness of God. The next verse says this, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Can I just tell you today, ingratitude is a monkey trap. It's a monkey trap. When you're ungrateful for the things that you have, all of a sudden it's like your world becomes gray. You, you lose joy. When even good things can happen to you and you only see the negative side. When, when you're ungrateful, ingratitude is a trap. It's like somebody walks up to you and you know, they, they give you a $25 Starbucks gift card. Now to a grateful person, they go, oh man, thank you. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. And a person that's filled with ingratitude, they take that card and in their mind they think, yeah, must be nice for the folks that drink Starbucks coffee, you know. 20, I, guess, I guess I can drink with them for at least two visits. Five dollar coffee. I can't afford to live that life. You know, just find something wrong with it. Like, just go get you a pumpkin spice latte and smile about it. Don't be ungrateful. But ingratitude, it's a prison and it locks people. You know what some of you need to do? You need to, you need to live open-handed with your worship. 
to come into God's presence and to not be tight-fisted, but to be open-handed and say, God, I, I just thank you. I just thank you for everything you've done. God, I thank you for your faithfulness in my life. I thank you for your goodness in my life. Thank you for meeting my needs. Thank you for getting me up this morning. Thank you for starting me on my way. Thank you for giving me this day, my daily bread. Thank you for meeting my needs. All of a sudden, you become grateful, and it changes. It releases you from the monkey trap. So we embrace life with an open hand. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about forgiveness of others. I'm talking about worship. We embrace life with an open hand and not a clenched fist, knowing that God will provide what we need to fulfill his will. And I just tell you today that God wants his children to know he's faithful. He wants you to know he's faithful. You can go all through the, the story of God's people from cover to cover, and you can see the story of a God who wants his children to know, I'm faithful. I'm a good father. You can trust me. When God told Abraham in Genesis, when he was still Abram, and he told him, I want you to, to go. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. The Bible says he told Abram to go, not knowing where he was going. He sent him out with uncertainty. Why? Because he wanted to teach him that he could trust him to be his provision and his source on the journey. When Moses led the children out of bondage in Egypt, out into the wilderness, God said he was going to take care of them. He was going to feed them. Many of you know the story. He, he caused manna from heaven to form on the ground like dew. And every morning they would go out and they would collect the manna. And God gave them instructions that every day they would go out and collect and they're going to have just enough for that day. But like us, some of them thought, well, you know, I might take a sick day tomorrow, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little extra in today. But the Bible says that when they collected more than they needed, it rotted overnight. God refused to allow it to last, why? Because he wanted to teach them, I'm gonna be your supply every day of your life. And they had to learn that lesson. That's why when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, when you pray, say this, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today what we need. Give us today what we have to have. Teach us, Lord, to know that you are faithful. The freedom that Jesus purchased for you and for me at Calvary. The, the salvation that is ours in Christ through the cross, it's never gonna be realized. It's never gonna be fully experienced until you embrace the reality that God is faithful. Amen. You can trust him. Amen. You can trust him. And there's a lot of people that would, they would check the box Christian. They would identify maybe even with a local church but they have never come to the place in the rest of their life, aside from their songs and their theology. They've never come to the place in their finances or in their relationships or in their family where they really believe God is faithful. And so while they might associate with Christianity, the brand that they're carrying and living out is so watered down, it's so diluted that they feel feel ungenuine. And maybe that's you today. You're going, my experience just doesn't, it doesn't feel like I think it's supposed to feel. And I would challenge you. I would push back with this thought. Are you trusting God in every area of your life? Yes. Because we have to fully embrace 
the work of redemption. Not just my sins are gone. All things are made new, and that includes my mindset. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus, so I think differently. God wants you to know today, he can be trusted. Now, I'm going to give you five things here, five things that every radically generous person knows. Five things. Number one, God owns it all. I said he owns it all. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this, says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You need to understand that today. See, radically generous people know that we don't give to God because God needs it. And so that changes the, the, the mentality of when we give. You know, maybe, maybe you've given to a, a disaster relief effort here recently. We've had plenty of those. And the compulsion oftentimes to give in those situations, and it's not a bad motivation. I'm just saying it, oftentimes what it is, is they really need it. Sometimes we even say these words, oh, they need it more than me. Can I tell you, that's never the motivation for giving to God. He does not need it more than you. We, we, never, we never just support the, the work and go, well, bless his heart. Right? No, he owns it all. Everything in the world and all who live in it. God asked Job a question. And, and I love this question in Job 41 verse 11. He said, who has a claim against me that I must pay. In other words, because God owns it all, he's not indebted to anybody. So he asked Job, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And I love the way God said it through the psalmist. Psalm 50 and verse 12, he said, this is God speaking, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> right? I mean, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you why. For the world is mine and all that is in it. So radically generous people understand God owns it all. You know, God is not some, some meager peasant God up there saying, if you would just, if you would just support me, I, I, could, I could do what I intend to do. No, God's going to have his way. With or without me, with or without you. We understand God owns it all. There were some men that came to Jesus. The Bible actually says they were spies. These spies that were sent to, to watch Jesus and try to trap him in some way because the religious people wanted to arrest him and they just couldn't find him making any mistakes that deemed them arresting him. So they sent spies and so these spies come to Jesus, and they ask him a question. They're, they're trying to trap him. I better not say that. There's a lot of people trying to trap people these days. I think, I think this is a, a, relevant, a relevant application. They were trying to trick Jesus, saying something that he shouldn't have said. And so here's what happened. They said, Jesus is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Because Caesar was, was wicked and he didn't honor God's commands, but yet he was in charge and the law said pay taxes. And Jesus asked them a brilliant question. He says, whose face, whose inscription is on the coin? Let me see it. So they, they pull the coin out and go, it's Caesar. It's Caesar. 
And he says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. I'm going to tell you why that's brilliant. Because whose image were you created in? Whose inscription is on your life? Whose fingerprint is all over you? So Jesus was saying in that moment, oh, yeah, you want to pay taxes to Caesar? You should. That's it. I mean, his, his name's on the money. But at the same time, give God what's his. Oh, I'm sorry. Did Psalm 24 say everything belonged to him? God owns it all. All of it. So radical generosity is not about giving a portion of your time to serving other people. Radical generosity is not about giving a portion of your talents or your abilities to the church. It's not about giving a percentage of your income to the church. Radical generosity is about giving your whole life back to God. It all came from him. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights where there is no shifting of shadows. It came from him. So to live a radical, generous life changes the posture from I'm going to help you to everything I have came from you. You own it all. I'm the manager. That's what we are, church. We're managers. And all of life is a stewardship test. One day, you and I are going to stand before God, and he is going to ask us to give an account for how we stewarded this life, our money, our health, our children, the church. He's going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? And the good news is he's not going to ask you how you handled anything he didn't give you. But for everything that he put in your hands, it's an opportunity for us to steward it. All of life is a stewardship test. Your time, your talent, your treasure. Those things are all God's gifts to you. What you do with them, that's your gift back to God. What do you do with what I gave you? That's what he's going to ask. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 9, He was sending them out. And here's what he told them to do. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Now, all I ask you to do is pray for each other this morning. Aren't you glad I'm preaching? Jesus asked them to do those things. But why did he ask them to do them? Because the next verse, he said, freely you have received, freely give. See, that's Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Freely you've received, so freely give. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cast out demons. I want you to cleanse those who have leprosy. I want you to raise the dead. How could he ever ask those guys to do that? Well, if you go back to verse 1 in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them He gave them the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus will never ask you to do something that he hasn't already given you the ability to do it. He'll never ask you to give him something that he hasn't first given to you. So every radically generous person, just we don't get nervous about it. We know that there's nothing I can give to God that he hasn't already given to me. We understand that. All of life is a stewardship test. Number two is this. Generous people know this. Radical generosity begins 
with the tithe. It begins with the tithe. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Now, this is written to an agrarian culture that they, they bartered and they traded. That's why we're talking in terms of crops. We don't live in that society anymore. We use greenbacks. But you understand the concept that he said, honor the Lord with the first fruits. The, the tithe is the first fruits. And so when it comes to generosity towards God, it's not saying, well, let's see what I have left over and let me see how generous I can be. That's not radical generosity. Maybe that's reactionary generosity, but it's not radical generosity. Radical generosity understands that it begins with the first fruits. So when the income comes in, the first decision that I make is God's portion. What I'm going to set aside and give to God before I worry about anything else. Why? Because the decisions are based on my priorities. And the word of God says in Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these other things will be added under you. So we don't give by subtraction at the end of the ledger. No, we start with generosity and then God adds all the other things to it. Amen. The Bible says in Leviticus 27 verse 30, a tithe of everything in the land or from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, it belongs to the Lord, it is holy to the Lord. And so the starting place of our obedience with our money specifically is tithing. Now, not only does tithe mean first, it's priority giving, but tithe, the word tithe means 10%. It's a mathematical term, but we don't use it for anything else except money. We, we don't you know, we don't say, do you want to tie the gratuity? You know, when you go out to eat, no. You just add 10 or hope you add more than that. But if we don't call it a tithe, we just call it 10%. But the tithe refers to our finances. Here's, here's what the word of God says about it. And again, I, I told you earlier, I'm giving you a lot of scriptures. I just want to, I want to ground this in truth today. Let me give you 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Because this passage right here gives us four truths about tithing. Here it is. Verse, chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So here's the four points that this one verse teaches us. First of all, we should give regularly. It says every week. So we should give regularly. Secondly, we should give individually. That, that verse says, each one of you, each one of you, every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. So we should give methodically. You set aside a sum of money and you do it at the first of the week. So there's a method to it. There's, it's individual, it's regular, it's methodical. And then fourthly, it's proportionally. He says, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Don't set aside a sum of money in keeping with somebody else's income. That doesn't make any sense. No, you give proportionate to your means. That's why the principle of the tithe is fair. Because God's not asking all of us to, to make an equal gift today. What he's asking is equal sacrifice. 
He's saying, bring the tithe into the storehouse. That's what Malachi 3 says. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. In other words, God's saying, you bring the tithe into the church so that all of the needs of the ministry will be provided for. So we bring the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And then he says this. Now, this is, this is one of the most amazing verses in Scripture. Malachi 3.10. He says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Test me in this principle of, of tithing. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. He said, you just try it. Test me in this. You, you, you might think right now the idea of tithing, about giving 10% to God before I do anything else with the rest of it. How can that work? God says, test me in this. Try it and see if I don't make that 90% go way farther than you could on your own. Test me in this and see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on your life, more than you can contain. A blessing that will leave you scratching your head at the end of the quarter saying, how did that happen? How did I give more and get more? Because the Bible says those who lend generously lend to the Lord. The Bible says, we read it earlier in Proverbs chapter 9. That the person who is a generous giver, their world expands. It's the one who who has a clenched fist who stays locked up and trapped. Then the next verse says this. Here's what God's going to do if we test him in this. He says, verse 12, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, God says, I'm going to bless you coming and going. I'm going to bless you by pouring out blessing on you, and I'm going to bless you by preventing loss. So he said, I'm going to prevent the losses that those that you foresee and the ones you don't foresee. I'm going to bless you by helping you to not lose as much, but I'm also going to bless you by helping you to gain more. And so on both sides of our generosity, God's hand of favor is on the life of his people. And then it says this in the next verse. Verse 12 says, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord. There's something powerful about our giving to God, our our tithe. When we prioritize tithing to the Lord, the Bible says people will will see that, and they're going to call you blessed. They're not going to call you rich. They're not going to call you wealthy. And I got, they might not ever call you the Joneses, unless that really is your last name. <laughs> but they're going to call you blessed. They're going to look at your life and go, man, there's something enviable about them. How, how do they have it so good? How do things just seem to work out for them? How do they always get picked? How does it always work in their favor? Why are their kids so beautiful? They got that from their mother, I guess. But I did tithe. You know, listen. God wants to bless your life. Radically generous people understand that generosity 
It begins with the tithe. The tithe is the first. The tithe is the tenth. See, occasional generosity, it's still generous. And for all the people that are occasional givers, thank God for you. It's still generosity, but radical generosity is consistent. And here's the spiritual implication. You will not see spiritual significant growth in your life if you don't take the issue of your money and put that in God's hands. You, You just won't. I mean, I know people are looking for the, what's the key? You know, I, I want to I get where I want to go as fast as I can get there. And I've seen that in the church even. You know, people, they get saved and they're like, all right, man, how, how do I do this thing? Like, let me at it. Let me go. What do I do? Well, there's a lot of things you can do. But as Pastor Chris mentioned last week, we come to God with our whole heart. And I'm just telling you, as honest and as plain as I can tell you, if, if the issue of your finances, if your money is not a part of that That whole surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there's no fast track for you. You're not going to learn. You're not going to learn that God is faithful. You're not going to get the lesson that he's been trying to teach from Genesis to Revelation, that he can be trusted, that he's good, because you've always got your hand in some coconut, some other resource. You're going, yeah, God, I I worship you. I love you, God. I, I surrender all. It just doesn't work. You have to be willing to say, God, I, I just, all that I am, I live with an open hand and not a clenched fist. Because I know you can be trusted. Number three is this. I'll give you these quickly. Generosity positions you for the blessing of God. Generosity positions you for the blessing of God. Can you buy the blessing of God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, you know, the Bible says this in Psalm 37, and we often quote this verse, or at least I've heard it quoted a lot in church. Verse 30, uh, chapter 37, verse 25 says, I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. That's a great verse. I've heard that verse quoted all my life. I am, I was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. That's one of those verses that just flows out when you're trying to build your faith. When you're praying and you're believing and God's going to show up, then we just say, God, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've done that plenty of times. And it's fine. You can say that. It's true. But why? Why are the righteous not forsaken? Next verse. They're always generous and they lend freely and their children will be a blessing. The righteous are not forsaken because they live life with an open hand. See, here's the problem. When you have a clenched fist, you're trying to hold on to what you think you can't lose. But you're not just not being generous The reality is when your fists are clenched, you can't receive any more blessing either. So you're not just holding on to what you have. You're resisting the more that God wants to give you. But a person who lives open-handed, a person that, that is always generous and lives freely, and their children are a blessing... You can say about that person, I was young and now I'm old and I've never, I've never seen that person forsaken. I've never seen that person begging for bread because they're generous. Let me give you the fourth thing. Radically generous people just know this. You have enough to live generously. I have enough to live generously today. 
Generous people know that. People that are not generous always put it off for tomorrow. Like once that, once that check comes in, I'll be generous. Once I get that bill paid off, I'll be generous. Once I get my tax return, I'll be generous. Once my kids move out of the house, then I'll be generous. Once the car's paid off, then I'll be generous. I'll start tithing once my spouse goes back to work, right? Generous people just know I, I can live generously today. I have enough. You have enough to be generous. Here's what, here's what Paul told Timothy. Now, I lean in when I read First and Second Timothy because Timothy was a preacher, and he needed to know how to do his job, and so do I. And so Paul wrote him a couple letters to say, Timothy, this is, this is what you need to do. And so my ears perk up when I read this book. Here's what he said to a young pastor. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. I'm learning. Nor to put their hope in wealth. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Somebody can say amen to that, right? Anybody that's seen the market go the other way in their lifetime? Yes, it's uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, look at the next verse. This is what Paul told a young preacher to tell the church. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So church, on Paul's admonition, in the name of Jesus, be rich. Be rich. That's what he said. Command the people to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And I just tell you today, you are rich. And, and I don't just mean I'm blessed. No, I, I mean financially. You're rich. We tend, to, we tend to just compare ourselves to the people we haven't arrived with yet. But if we would back up and look at the world around us, we are rich. You know, if, if you make $71,000 average annual income, and there may be some folks in here that do, if you make that much, you're in the top 10% of wealthy people in America. But if you make $32,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. If you have $2,000 to your name, I don't just mean like cash stashed away. I mean cars you own, equity in your home, your furniture, your assets, your bank account. If you have $2,000 to your name, you are wealthier than 50% of the world's population. Dave Ramsey, he's a financial advisor, he said this, you don't need a miracle to live off 90% in America. Yeah. Talking about the tithe. You, know, you just need to be less greedy. <laughs> you need to you know, uh, live within your means. You need to stop coveting what other people have. But you don't need a miracle to live off 90% in America. Tithing is not about having more money. That's, that's the beauty of, of, of God's plan. Tithing is not about having more money because it's always one penny of every dime. Yeah. Doesn't matter how many you have. It's just one penny of every 
dime. In America, only 15 to 20 percent of Christians actually tithe. In America, only 15 to 20 percent of Christians actually tithe. And what's really alarming is within that statistic is this one. 80% of those that do are 50 years and older. It's alarming to think that as we approach the coming of the Lord, that the church is, is going to be potentially less and less able and resourced to do the things that God wants them to do for no other reason, not, not because of means, but for no other reason that, that we don't trust the Lord in this area of our finances. You know, in America, I said 15 to 20% of Christians tithe, and, and I mentioned what our economy looks like on average, but in Cuba, in Cuba, where the worker makes on average $23 a month, a month, 98% of the church attenders are tithe payers. They bring that $2.30 every month. One penny on every dime. One dollar on every 10. They bring it faithfully. See, tithing is not a money issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Relevant Magazine did a study a little while back just kind of musing about this idea, what would it look like if the church actually excelled in the grace of giving? Like, what if we excelled in the grace of giving? And, and, and everyone just started where obedience begins, with the tithe. If every American paid tithe, they said we'd have an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. Just to put some perspective on that number, probably not one you thought about this week either. That means $25 billion could relieve hunger globally, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $25 billion could do that. $12 billion of that money could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places where one billion people live on less than a dollar a day. One billion dollars could fully fund our overseas missions work. And in case you've been doing the math, that still leaves about a hundred plus billion dollars that the church would have for additional projects. Just think about what, what God could do exponentially through the church if the body of Christ was fully funded for the work. Let me give you the, the fifth and final thing that radically generous people know. Radical generosity is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. You know, I said earlier, our generosity should be proportionate to our blessing. It should be proportionate. So, so how blessed are you? Well, let me give you one more verse to tell you how blessed you are. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You're very rich. God bankrupt heaven for your account. We are rich today, church. Not just financially, not just monetarily. We ought to live radically generous lives because the riches of heaven have been bestowed on our behalf. And here's what it means ultimately. Radical generosity means we look for opportunities to take another step. It means we look for the opportunity to take another step. Now, I I don't know where you're at today with this core value or where you might even be thinking about your next step is, but before I pray for you, I just want to mention a few steps that I think we need to take today. And maybe this first one's you. Some of you need to take a step from nothing to something. Maybe you're not a giver. None of your finances goes towards the work of the ministry. And maybe you just didn't know. You came to church this morning, and now you know. We looked at the word of God. We looked at the purpose for God's blessing in your life. And you're coming away from today, and you're going, wow. You mean the church doesn't get government funding? Wow. You mean... All this happens because the generosity of the people sitting around me? Yeah. Wow. You mean all of our missionaries, they are actually depending on us? If we don't send the money, they don't, they don't eat, they don't do the work, they don't buy the cars, they don't do the ministry? Yeah. And so for you, the first step is from nothing to something. Say, man, I got to get, get involved here. Maybe you were that person, you were afraid to trust God. And now today you see it. Man, this is a monkey trap. I'm coming to church. I'm trying to worship God. I can't lift both hands. They're shoved too deep in my pockets. I can't get them out. You're strangled by your finances. God wants to give you freedom today. So for you, the next step is from nothing to something. Some of you, the next step to take is from occasional to consistent. If you only give when you feel a compulsion outwardly or a motivation from somebody else to give that what that says is that you haven't fully devoted yourself to the Lord in the area of your finances that might sound strong but that's just the truth if you're diagnosing your own life you'll admit this if I only give when somebody evokes an emotion or if I feel compelled or if I go oh I feel bad they have a need no that's not why we give to the Lord he doesn't have any needs And so if you're only giving out of a need-based emotion, you haven't fully devoted this area of your life to Jesus. And so the next step for you, I I would challenge you, is to go from occasional to consistent. For some of us, the next step is this, to go from consistent to faithful. Faithful. And for you, that means start giving according to God's command, that obedience begins with the tithe. To say, I'm not just going to do something consistently. I'm going to do what God asked of me. Because now I'm moving out of just generosity to faith. To where God, I, I, I'm not waiting to see what I have and then deciding what to give. No, I, I'm putting you first. The tithe is first and it's a different way of giving. It's a different way of approaching God in worship of saying, God, you're Lord of all of it. And by me giving you 10%, I, I, 
I'm really not giving you 10%. I'm recognizing you gave me 100% and you asked me to steward 90 of it. And you said, if I'll steward 90, you'll bless the 90. You'll pour in blessing on top. You'll prevent loss. And so moving from consistent giving to faithful giving. For some of you, that's, that's the next step that God wants for you. And, and then for, for some here today, it's from faithful giving to fearless giving. And that's the place some of you need to go today. From faithful giving to fearless giving. Now I'm saying today, I told you earlier, we're not about to receive an offering. I'm not, I'm not talking about responding to one message and go, oh wow, I feel convicted, I guess I'll give. No, no, no. You would have missed the point. That's why we received the offering earlier. Because if you just do it today, that's good. It's generosity. But radical generosity is consistent. Radical generosity is priority giving. And it's faithful. From faithful to fearless. That's what sacrificial giving is. And the Bible talks about a church in Philippi that gave sacrificially. Now, I didn't take time to talk about them today because in the Life Group series, that's what the conversation is going to be about, about this church in Philippi that just gave sacrificially. So I'm not going to preach about them. I just want to read one verse. I want you to hear the heart of a sacrificial giver. It says this about them in 2 Corinthians 8, in the midst of very severe trials, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. What does that look like? They gave beyond their ability to give. That's sacrificial. Entirely on their own, he said. In other words, nobody made them do it. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. How'd they do that? He said they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. In other words, he said they gave the offering to the church, which is what they were receiving the offering for, but they went above and beyond the tithe. They also gave to our ministry. They also supported the work that we were doing, Paul and his missionary companions. For some of you, that's the next step, from faithful to fearless. Because God's called us to live life with an open hand and not a clenched fist. Knowing that God is gonna supply everything we need to fulfill his will. I wanna ask if you'd stand with me all over this room as, as we close this service in prayer today. This is not the kind of message that, that demands a response in this house. But I pray that you do respond. I pray that you do respond. And maybe for you, that's just to pull up the bank ledger and look at, look at your finances. You know, the Bible says, Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And I've always looked at that verse to mean, if I, if I look at your bank statement, I can tell where your heart is. 
because you spend on what matters to you. Where your treasure is, where your investment is, there your heart will be also. And, And I think that's probably true. But I've been thinking about that verse in a different way this week. So many times we wait to become generous until it feels right. But can I say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what the verse says. Which means, you know what? My response might not even be heartfelt, but you know what? I'm submitting to the word of God. And since the Bible says so, I'm just gonna do what the Bible says, and you know what's gonna happen? I put my treasure there, my heart's gonna go there. Can I just be honest with you? Tithing is not hard for me. I don't pray about tithing. Why? My heart's there. My treasure's been there for a long time. So my heart is there. And I just wanna say to you, where your treasure is there, your heart will be. So pray and ask God to speak to your heart. Because he really does wanna pour out more blessing than you can contain. But you have to open your hands first. You have to open your hands to receive it. Father, today, Lord, with open hearts and open hands, God, we receive your word. God, thank you. Thank you for richly blessing us. God, thank you for meeting our needs. God, as we leave this house today, help us to to go out of here with hearts and hands and eyes wide open. God, you you bless us to be a blessing. Help us to see how we can do it, how we can further your glory and your kingdom. God, thank you for all you've done through this church over the years. God, we believe there's so much more you want for us to do. There's so many more people you want us to reach. There's people all around this church that they're spiritually bankrupt. They need the riches of heaven like we found. God, use us. Find us to be good stewards. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen today. Amen. 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 Can we just give him one more open-handed hand clap of praise today? (laughs)